Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit LLgive.com. Thank you and Shalom. Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and we are still continuing our study in the book of Revelation. We call it Revealing the Book of Revelation. We are at chapter 2, and if you would turn your Bibles there to it, we're now about, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, we're about to review the seven letters to the churches that the Messiah dictated and told John to write and send these out. These individual places do really exist. There is a city of Ephesus as well as Smyrna, and they are all cities that are in the area of what used to be called Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey, off of the Aegean coast there between Greece and Turkey. And that's where he had ministered in that area. And uh, these are well-known places. Now, the reason why I believe that the Lord directed them to be written to those places uh, as opposed to other places uh, was this was the area John had ministered in. He had been exiled from that place uh, to the Isle of Patmos. And that was the most logical place. If he was going to write something and get it sent out to the brethren, these are the places where it would go. So the Messiah is directing him, uh, I have some messages, write them down, and send them to those places. Send them to the places where you have been ministering uh, for it. And there's history in each of these places. Uh, the very first one that we read here in chapter 2, let me just read the full message to the church of Ephesus, beginning at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, that you cannot endure evil men, and you put them to the test, those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant thee uh, to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. One of the things I shared with you in the previous program was that there's a very distinct pattern in these messages to the churches. And this first one has this distinct pattern, and you're going to see the other ones uh, follow it. It seems that the first expression that's given to this church is introducing the Messiah to them. Now, he says some of the same things that the Messiah has already introduced himself to John, 
you know, he makes reference to the very same things that John knows who he is, and he's now making the same thing to the uh, brethren at this church. And then he states something about he knows about them. In other words, I know who you are, and I've seen what you have done. And then there is something usually that needs to be corrected, something that's not right. And so he proposes that this particular thing get corrected. And then he pledges that if you get that corrected, you're going to get some sort of benefit or, or blessing as a result of that. And when it's all said and done, he comes down to this expression, and this is always repeated in him. Uh, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that phrase repeats itself seven times uh, in these messages. Uh, I think that's the evidence which is telling him uh, these are seven messages to seven distinctive places, but basically it's a shared message. I think the information that is in each one of these messages is appropriate for all of the churches. It's just that he's focused on a particular issue at a different one, and as I have studied this and looked over this, these issues that come up in these seven churches, these complaints that the Lord has, they're still with us today. You can go from assembly to assembly to assembly and find some of these same issues. And uh, obviously the threat that I'll come to you and do something to you uh, has to be relevant to the time that he wants the correction done. And I believe that that's the reason why these are messages that are very specific to last day assemblies, even to this day, as we look at the end of days. The... um, Let's go through just a little bit more of what he says. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. The word perseverance there, the translators struggle with that a little bit in the English as to what exactly word did they want to use. Uh, another word that could be used there is steadfastness. And I want to share just personally um, for a moment with you. There are many uh, uh, fruit of the Spirit. As you walk out with the Lord, there's certain characteristics that, that go with it. Uh, but this characteristic we call steadfastness is probably one of the least spoken ones. Um, being steadfast means you hang in there thick and thin. You're there for the long haul. Uh, it's not talking about immediate cute uh, issues. It means I'm, I'm going to be there. And I'm going to be there after the other people said they were going to be there but didn't be there. I'm I'm still going to be there. And he's complimenting them, uh, the Blair, that you've been hanging in there a long time. And you've you've remained steadfast. Uh, In the course of my walk with the Lord, this was one of the things that the Lord really emphasized uh, to me uh, in my early discipleship was, You may be having ups and downs, Monty, every once in a while, but remain steadfast. Finish all the way to the finish. You know, hang in there. You know, there's there's always different winds that blow different ways. There's always seasons and and, and changes and so. But but hang in there. Keep going. Be steadfast uh, in it. And uh, it's a little bit like the word picture of the anchor. 
uh, and which holds something in place, um, despite what the winds may do, despite what the sea may do, what, whatever the case, that, that you're anchored there and you're going to stay there. And that is a uh, not very often seen quality in the faith. And so that is very um, uh, complimentary. Uh, he has given a very strong and powerful compliment um, to this in this particular message. But then he says, "But I got something against you." He says, "You've uh, you've left your first love." Okay, so what in the world is the first love? What in the world could that possibly be? Well, it turns out that the first time that God ever gives us a really powerful commandment about loving is in the Torah. And the the Messiah echoed this. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so the first evidence that we have in Scripture where God is talking about there is a commanded dimension to love, it's to love God and it's to love his instructions and love his commandments. Do those. That's how you demonstrate that you love God. There's lots of people who get up and they'll give lip service and they say, oh, I love God, but they won't do what he says. I love God, but I I don't want to keep the Torah. I don't want to keep the commandments. Well, I'm sorry, but you failed the test, the measure that God uses to determine what is the love he's talking about. And when it says you've left your first love, I think these people, to a certain extent, they started out with the Torah and they backed off. Or they never really got going with the Torah and the commandments at all. Um, and I've seen lots of people who come into the Messianic movement for just a short time, start keeping Sabbath. Maybe even keep festival, maybe, you know, even change their eating habits and so forth. And then have reverted back. And, and they don't do those things anymore. It's, this is a very appropriate message for a lot of messianics I know. You've, you, you, you know what your first love is and you walked away from it. You need to get back to that. And what a powerful, repentful message it is that the Messiah would be saying, turn back to the commandments, turn back to the things the Lord has said and instructed us to do. He says that if they don't do that, he's going to do something horrible to them. Uh, So get the picture here. What is this horrible thing that that the Lord's going to do to us if we don't keep following the Torah? He says, I'll take your lampstand away from you. I'll take your menorah away from you. Now think about this for a moment. We talked about in the previous session that the menorah, the symbol of the seven candelabrium, is not necessarily the symbol of the church, but it is the symbol of messianic assemblies. If you take the menorah away from a church, it's like so. It means nothing to them. It means nothing. So we're not obviously talking about that group of people. We have to be talking to a group of people that if you take a menorah away from them, it's harmful. And they know it's harmful. They know the Lord's not pleased with them. So the threat of removing the, the menorah or the lampstand would be appropriate for a believing messianic assembly. And if you take that away, what have you taken away? Their community. They're getting together for festival. Their observance of Sabbath together. Your congregation will just disintegrate. And by the way, think about the logic of this. 
if all of a sudden a messianic congregation steps away from the Torah and not teaching and fulfilling and keeping the commandments, what do you have? Nothing. You don't have a congregation anymore. So what do you need a lampstand for? You don't need one. And so this is another one of those examples where I've got a little bit of a Hebrew thing involved here. And you remember those lampstands represent the churches, and I'm going to take the lampstand from you. You're going to cease to be an assembly to me. Wow. That's pretty serious to a messianic assembly. Again, it's another example here. It doesn't mean much to a church. It's this, this is like an idle threat. Oh, that don't mean nothing, you know. Come on in here. I don't even know if we got one, but if we got one, take it away. Um, you know, it doesn't make any sense when you're talking about modern-day churches today. It's not a serious threat whatsoever. And I don't think the Lord puts out idle threats. I think that this is very specific. And I think the people that are have the lampstand, they know what the consequence of this would be. And it's a very severe punishment to you to them. Verse 6, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now he's kind of reversed the thing, and he says there's something I want to compliment you about. The Nicolaitans um, is a historical group that is that was known within the Asia Minor area. In other words, this was an issue that John wrestled with when he was in his ministry. And what it is... Um, that's a group of people that are, the best way I can describe it is they're into sensuality. They're into um, seeking out the pleasure of foods. They're into seeking out the pleasure of, of uh, all kinds of recreation. They're also into the pleasure of sexual immorality. And so it's just, a, it's just um debauchery and just it's all for comfort and pleasure and uh, as you know here in the western nations particularly in the united states boy we kind of qualify for that one um, because that's basically our culture is the same kind of thing now when that culture becomes that that the culture becomes to the point that it overpowers um, the faith doing that which is right, then it, be, then it moves into the zone of evil. And they become evil men. So what he says is, he says specifically, he said, um, let me see if I can get the verse back again. Uh, you hate the deeds, um, this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And while they may not have themselves um, that kept the, the Torah and the commandments, they lost their first love, there's this part of them that says, I still know the difference between right and wrong. And there are a lot of Messianic believers I see that have stepped away from the Torah, uh, keeping the Torah, keeping the Sabbath, keeping festival, but they still know what's right and what's wrong. And so they, they resist that. The Lord recognizes that they're doing that, uh, but he wants more. He wants uh, real obedience to him. And what he says, instead of you picking and choosing uh, and to what you want to do. So he speaks to this particular group, these particular messages. Now, um, it's not based, let me say this again, it's not based on the exact location. We're talking about characteristics that happen in messianic assemblies. 
We're talking about the, as you go to this assembly or that assembly or another assembly. And so we, when you get there, you may find different characteristics, almost a different culture in each place. This particular symptomatic description of a problem could be found in any number of them. It, it might only be found in one, whatever the case may be. But he's saying take an examination of yourself. You don't even have to have the name Ephesus. Just take a look at yourself. Do you have this kind of thing going on? Do you have people that are walking away from the Torah, but yet they know right and wrong and they don't want to participate in the world and, and so forth? Then this is a description of that group of people, and here's the exhortation from the Lord, the correction from the Lord. Get that turned around. You know, because if you don't get that turned around, when I come, he's saying, you're going to have problems. When I come, it's you're going to have issues that are going to hurt you. And so all of these messages are actually trying to prepare the last day brethren to get ready for when I come. Because when this great tribulation comes, it's going to be compelling. It's going to demand the attention of every believer. There's not going to be any options. Well, I'll opt out of the tribulation and I'll show up later. No, you're all going to be confronted with these things. You're all going to be confronted with the coming of the Lord. And he's trying to get us ready uh, for those things. All right, so let's move to the next message. It begins at verse 8. This is to the church of Smyrna. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write... Uh, the first and the last, who is dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now this one is a little bit more tears, uh, following the pattern. Uh, the Messiah introduces himself, and he says, I'm the first and the last uh, who was dead and has come to life. In other words, I'm the one that died, and I was resurrected. There's one other point I want to tell you. The, when I told you the Aleph forms the word et, it's one of the smallest words in the Hebrew vocabulary, it shows up at different places, and as I shared with you in a previous portion, the rabbis find this thing all over the place throughout Scripture. But there's about 14 specific places uh, in, in, the, in the Tanakh where they ask the question, who or what is the olive tav, or who or what is the et, because it demands it to be a person. Let me uh, share one of the most powerful places where it's at, and that is in the prophet Zechariah, and um, I believe it's in chapter 10, uh, or is it Zechariah 23.10? It's one of those two. <laughs> look it up. It's the one, it says, they will look upon him whom they pierced. It's in chapter 10. And the word him and whom is not in the Hebrew text. Let me give you a literal kind of reading 
in the Hebrew text. They will look upon olive tav they pierced. That's what it literally says. They will look upon et they pierced. Now, that's one of the places where the rabbi says, that's got to be a person. That can't be a thing. And they're asking themselves, what exactly is that? Normally, when this thing shows up, this olive tav shows up, let me give you the grammatical thing. What it's saying is the action of the verb is not on the subject, but is on the predicate object. The most classic place is up in uh, Genesis 1.1. And, and uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? Um, but there's actually seven Hebrew words there, and in the middle of it is this word, et. Uh, where it says actually Bereshit, Bera, um, Eloheinu, Et, Hashemayim, Ve'et, Haaretz. In other words, I went, in the beginning, God created uh, Et, the heavens and the earth. In the Hebrew, that's what it actually says. But you don't, you don't know the Et is, is a thing. It's saying the, God didn't get created. It's saying the heavens and the earth got created. In other words, the action of the verb is on the predicate object, not on the subject of the sentence. But right there in the middle is that word. And they're going, something is there, uh, that, and, and uh, there is a person there. It's a creator. And that's the reason why John, in his opening gospel, in the beginning, where he's talking about Genesis 1, was the word. What word? The et. In the beginning was the word, et. And he was God, and he created all things. And so there's a testimony. So when Yeshua says, I'm the Aleph and Tav, he said, I was back there at creation. And then in Zechariah, he says, I'm, I'm the one that was pierced. I, I, that was me, and I suffered as a result of died, but I rose again. And as I said, when you point this out to uh, some rabbis that know about this issue here, this is a very powerful testimony. This, to a Hebrew, this is a very powerful statement being made by the Messiah. It may not be so powerful to the Gentiles, but when Yeshua says, I'm the first and last, I'm the Aleph and the Tav who was dead and has come to life, and they know what the other prophets have said. Very powerful statement about who he is. Um, and as, as I shared with you last time, if you take the Aleph and Tav and you get down to the, the detailed definition of each of the letter, it means the strength of the cross. I'm the strength of the cross. You know, you know the one that was pierced for your transgressions, the one that died, the one who came to life. You know, I'm that, that's who I am. Uh, and it really ties into the crucifixion, really ties into the most, some of the most powerful uh, testimony of the Messiah himself. So the Messiah's been introduced again. Now he says, I'm going to make a statement about you. I know something about you. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. You think you're poor. But you know... Uh, Sometimes poor people that are poor, according to world standards, sometimes they can still be rich people. My own personal testimony, when I was a kid growing up, I've been told this by other adults, that we, my family, where I grew up, we were considered to be the poorest family in town. You know what? I didn't know I was poor. I thought I was pretty well off. You know? 
I wasn't starving to death. Maybe I didn't get all the things I would like to have, but that didn't stop me from having other activities I like to do. And I, you know, I had a normal childhood as far as I'm concerned, and I went to high school, and it, it was a struggle sometimes to get the activity ticket. And man, it was a major effort on my part when um, I lettered uh, and at, in school, and I got my my letter jacket. You know, my letter sweater and so on. That was big time expenses to be able to get those things, but I figured out a way to do it. And I didn't get a car until it was um, uh, way into my senior year, uh, toward the end, and I only got to have the car for a short time before my dad decided he wanted to sell it and have the $100 back. Uh, but, the, but I didn't think I was poor. And here, when I hear him say uh, that you are. Uh, that you're poverty, but you are rich. Can I just tell you something very quickly about uh, people in the world? There are some people who are just poor in spirit. There's a spirit of poorness about them. And they really get down on themselves. I can't. I can't do it. Can't afford it. Blah, blah. If I heard I can't afford it growing up, um, or we can't afford it growing up, I would venture to say, and I'm not exaggerating, I would venture to say something in the order of tens of thousands of times that I can recall in my youth. And in fact, I have made it a uh, a vow to myself, and this is how I've led my family, this is how I conduct ministry. I never say I can't afford it, or we can't afford it. I never say it. Because I'm confronted with the fact, yes, we can, but it might bust the budget on everything else. Um, But I can't afford it if I choose to do it. And that's a whole different mindset from we can't. That's a it's just a completely different mindset. And that's what I hear them saying. Drop this poor in spirit business. Drop this idea that you can't do it. You can do it if you choose to do it. Now, he goes into some detail as to what are the things that are bothering them. And, for example, he says, The blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. A little explanation we're going to have to give here now. This phrase, by the way, is going to get repeated in chapter 3. There's going to be another group where the subject comes up. So let's talk about this. Here we are. We're um, in this Messianic assembly. Did you know? Did you know that in a Messianic assembly, there's a pretty good chance that there's some real Jews in there that believe in the Messiah, mixed in with all the other brethren? So there are still Jews in those assemblies. But being a Messianic Jew and being in the Messianic movement uh, for many, many years, I have to share something somewhat to the embarrassment of me and my brethren. You know, the Bible does say that we Jews are stubborn and stiff-necked. That's still a pretty good description of us. And I've seen in Messianic assemblies Jews kind of throw their weight around And in the modern messianic movement that we have right now, there's different messianic organizations representing messianic believers. And they throw their weight around and they act haughty. And they'll treat Gentile believers like second-class citizens. I am not making this part up. In fact, I've confronted many of them as being bigoted. 
and doing despicable things. For some reason, they didn't like me saying that to them, so they don't like me very much. Um, I want you to note something here. The Messiah is writing a message to a Messianic assembly, and he said, Oh, by the way, I'm aware that there's some Jews in your assembly, and they're misbehaving. I'm aware of that. Now, in a church, you would never have that situation. Jews don't go to church. And if the Jews do go to church, they assimilate and become Christians. You don't even know they're Jews. And then he goes on to say that I know about them, and they are of their of the synagogue of Satan. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, we're talking about the assembly of Satan. So if we came into the presence of Satan and he had an assembly of the people, what do you think would be the dominant activity? What do you think would be going on there? Obviously not worshiping God. Okay? I can tell you what there is. He's the accuser of the brethren. All he's doing is sitting around and finding accusation against other brethren. And by the way, if you have in your assembly, if you've got a bunch of people that are sitting around and just making accusations against other brethren that are in the assembly, that's the synagogue of Satan in real time. That's the assembly of Satan. The blasphemy, instead of the commandment to love your neighbor, love your brother, the bondservant who shows forth that he's the bondservant of Yeshua because of his love of the brethren, if instead you're spending all your time and energy being the prosecutor, being the witnesses, and being the judge, and usurping God's authority, and going around judging fellow brethren, and finding accusation again, and you're spending your energy on the, you are in the synagogue of Satan. And by the way, I hate to say this, in a lot of Messianic assemblies, and in the Messianic movement, there's a lot of my Jewish brethren that are doing exactly that. All they want to do is find fault with other people. They're full of envy and strife. And they're stubborn, and they're stiff-necked, and it's the same group of people. In fact, they are the children of the same people that came out of Egypt. They're mumblers and grumblers and, and find fault, and they get themselves in trouble with the Lord all the time. So he's talking about, yeah, I know in your assembly you got some of those. Okay? I know about it. Okay? I know they're in the midst of you. You know, and basically he wants them to continue to pursue on. But then it really shifts gears. And this is probably, of all the messages uh, to the seven messages, this is probably one of the most disturbing ones in it. Let me read it to you again. verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Hmm. This particular assembly is being told by the Messiah, Hey, guys, um, you, you definitely are going to suffer in the future. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. You're going to be captured. You're going to be taken captive. That you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. If I were to go back into all the prophecies, let me tell you what the length of the Great Tribulation is. 1,290 days. The whole Great Tribulation, the whole, all of the events is three and a half years. 
So what's that thing about 10 days? You will have tribulation for 10 days. You've been taken prisoner. You're going to have tribulation for 10 days. So how does that all fit into it? Well, he says, be faithful until death. Let me just say it kind of abruptly. There are believers today um, who, in the course of events of the Great Tribulation unfolding, are not going to escape, they're not going to survive, and they're not going to endure to the end. The circumstances of what's going to happen is they're going to be captured, taken captive by legal authorities. And he's basically saying to him, don't worry <laughs> about you sitting in some kind of concentration camp for the whole great tribulation and starving to death. He said, what's going to happen is you're going to be captive. It's not going to be longer than 10 days. and They're going to kill you. You're not going to have to wait it all out. It's, it's All you have to do is for a short time, be faithful those 10 days. Hang in there for those 10 days. And if you do... I will grant you the crown of life. Which now brings up another interesting point, that in the kingdom, there's a lot of different rewards. In fact, if you do a study on all of the different rewards that could be in the kingdom, the crown of life is the one that's given the martyrs of the faith. Now, one of the interesting things about the, the, the kingdom is it's not level. It's not everybody's treated fair. Uh, the master rewards according to what he values to the kingdom. So the kingdom is is vertical. There are some who are great in the kingdom, some who are least in the kingdom. And if you were martyred, if you lost your life for the sake of the Lord and the kingdom, you receive something called the crown of life. Believe you me, I'm not sure where it all ranks and all this stuff, but let me tell you something, it's really good. In the kingdom, it'll be very special. If I could use this example, uh, I'm, I was formerly in the military. I know lots of brethren that were formerly in the military. We have certain th uh, awards and certain medals that are awarded for different levels of service. If you go get killed, you get the Purple Heart. If you get wounded and survive it, you still get the Purple Heart. But but your life was specifically threatened, and you get the Purple Heart. Now, if you're a hero, you know, and, and you were showed valor in battle, you could get the Bronze Star, you could get the Silver Star, you could get a Distinguished Service Medal. Well, that's huge. In the Navy, you could get the Navy Cross. That's one just short of the Medal of Honor. You get the Medal of Honor. I would tell you amongst veterans, amongst people, if a man came in and he had won the Medal of Honor, as far as I'm concerned, he could do anything and have anything he wants, even in the midst of us. Um, I'm going to tell you a short military story so you can get the sense of this, so you understand this crowd. Uh, one of the uh, experiences that I had was being in the military, and I happened to be in a, in a squadron, and we got this new guy in, and he had been he had been in Vietnam like we had, but he had been in the riverine boats, you know, that was in the Mekong Delta, and they were riding the boats, and and so he was on the list guy that had been on there, and apparently he had gotten into quite a bit of combat, 
we just knew that he'd been there and he was now at the squadron and he was a, a technician like the rest of us and we were done at night check and, and we got done with our shift and we decided we're going to go off base to this little place called it was a peanut bar you could go get a cold beer and some peanuts and, and play shuffleboard and, and it was kind of a recreation place after work and uh, we're getting ready to load up and we invite this new guy you know, to join with us and go with it. And he says, yes, he'd love to do it. And we noticed that when he got out of his uniform, he still had kind of a white shirt on that looked like a T-shirt. And military, especially the Navy, they absolutely frowned on you not wearing appropriate civilian attire. And that looked like a skivvy shirt. It looked like an undershirt, even though it had a pocket. And we were telling him, hey, you know, the Marines ain't going to let you get off the base. You, you can't leave the base wearing that thing. You've got to get a different shirt. He said, well, that's my shirt. That's my civilian shirt. He said, look, it's got a pocket. And I said, I've heard all the stories before. They're going to stop you. They won't let you off the base. And uh, so we get in the car, and he's in the back, and, and we're going, and, and we're trying to get past this, not block us, but this Lance Corporal at the gate, Man, he noticed that T-shirt right off the bat, stopped the car, and he said, you're not an appropriate civilian attire. You have to go around, and um, you have to go back and get a clean shirt. And we're going, oh, the hassle of going back to the barracks and trying to find a shirt for him and the whole bit. When all of a sudden, he got out of the car. And he walked over to this Lance Corporal and had a few words with him. And the Lance Corporal steps back in his guard shack, and he's calling for the sergeant of the guard. And that sergeant came down there, and he had a little conversation with that. And the next thing we know, well, he says, pull the car over. This will be about 20 minutes. And I said, what's happening? So uh, they're bringing the, um, the honor guard out so that I can inspect the honor guard before I leave this military installation. And I'm going, what are you, nuts? Turns out he was a Medal of Honor winner from Vietnam. And one of the rights of a Medal of Honor winner in the military is anytime you enter or leave a military installation, you have the right to inspect the Honor Guard. And that was the first time I got to see 20 beautiful Marines in full military dress standing down there in ranks and us going up and down the ranks inspecting the honor guard like out of the movie The Dirty Dozen going up and down and that's some of the honor given to it brethren let, you know I tell this funny story to you because you have no idea the rewards that are going to be in the kingdom and what will be the result of them and I can assure you that if you receive the crown of life that is talking about here, when we get to the kingdom, those people are definitely going to be noticed. They are going to be important people in the kingdom. And he's specifically saying, if you go into the tribulation and you're taken captive and you suffer death, I'm going to give you the crown of life. And when you get there and it's all over and done with, you'll, you'll, you'll be saying, it was more than worth it. It was more than worth it to be faithful to the Lord. And that's just one of the different kinds of awards that will be granted by the Messiah, the rewards that, 
when he comes back, he brings rewards for his brethren. Now, most of us look at the idea and go, well, there's not much reward in the bag for me. But you don't understand. You don't understand how the Messiah sees his kingdom. You don't understand the contribution that you make just by being a steadfast believer. Just be faithful and do what the Lord tells you to do. Believe me, when you get there, there's going to be some rewards for you. Now, don't do it just because I want to get rewards. Do it because you love the Lord. And it's the right thing to do. That's why you want to do it. Now, in this particular case, if you're already taken captive and you know they're going to kill you, it seems to me it's a no-brainer. Go ahead and be faithful to the Lord. I mean, doing anything else isn't going to help you. Might even accelerate your death. I don't know. But be faithful. And that's what the Lord is calling them to do. Now, I know that's a very, very tierce message. By the way, good news, it's the only one that's in these seven. <laughs> They're not talking about different ways you're going to die in the other places. In fact, there's some other things that are said, wonderful things that are said. But this is a very tierce thing. And, and we know that the destiny of the tribulation saints is threefold. We know those that take up the sword will die by the sword. If you decide to take up weapons and arms to defend yourself in the Great Tribulation, you're probably going to die by that method. Uh, but you may be called to that, and that may be your destiny, because you may be, in fact, delivering and helping other people to escape. Number two, you may, you, you may get captured. Maybe you got captured because you, you, you didn't act quick enough, or maybe you got captured because you just got surrounded and there was, there was no choice. It's your destiny. Or, but the third destiny is the one that we keep referring to. That's where you escape, survive, and endure to the end. And there's a lot more verses about that group of people than there is about the others. But the Lord does address that there are these other destinies. The interesting thing about a destiny is not something you choose. A destiny is something that's been chosen for you. And in the case of this, this is what the Lord chose for you. If he chose you to be a captive... Be a captive. Be a good one. If he chose you to take up arms and defend brethren and then suffer the death because of it, be a good one. If he told you to escape, escape good. If he told you he wants you to survive, survive good. If he wants you to endure, hang in there. Whatever the destiny is, and, and by the way, when we get into the Great Tribulation, it will become obvious what is our destiny. You know, what has been chosen for us. In this case, he's saying to this group that some of you are going to be taken captive by the devil and be faithful uh, for it. And again, we hear the phrase, let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to all of the churches. So that phrase right there is saying, that may have been the message to Ephesus, but it may apply to you. This is the message to, to Smyrna, but it may apply to you, or it may apply to someone else. You know, are you hearing what the Spirit is saying to all of you? And that's the clue that says we need to be paying attention to all of these issues because they may or may not apply to us. They may or may not apply to other brethren that are with us. All right, let's go to the next one, which is Pergamum. And verse 12, it says, 
And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balaam to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Thus, you will also have some in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war with you and with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no man knows but he who receives it. This particular letter here is filled with all kinds of relating back to different things. Um, when it talks about the Messiahs having the two-edged sword, you go back to Ezekiel. You go back to Ezekiel chapter 20, and one of the visions that's given of the Messiah who returns is that he has a two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. And what it really is referring to, and, and we know this, the, the other New Testament writers worry about this, you do know that this teaching is referred to as a two-edged sword. The Word of God cuts through things. And it slashes this way and slashes back this way. It's a two-edged sword. It can cut forward and it can cut back. Um, He's saying, I'm the one that spoke the Word of God. I speak the Word of God. That's who I am. Wow, just think about that for a little bit. That is profound as can be. A lot of people, we look at Yeshua, Jesus as a great friend, and so forth. You do understand that what comes out of his mouth, the words he says, is the living word of God that is a sharp two-edged sword that can kill, cut right through you. Uh, Paul, uh, in the letter to Tim- Timothy, refers to the Word of God and this ability to do it. It says it's so fine in its cutting that it can cut and separate out the joints from the marrow. Now, the joint, you know, at the end of the bone has that cartilage and so forth. And inside the bone is that soft, mushy material called marrow. And the marrow blends right into the joint. He says, my sword that I cut, I can cut, and I can put the marrow on this side and the joint on that side. Not only is it able to cut, it's able to separate exactly. He also says that I can tell the difference between um, uh, intents of the heart and thoughts. You know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes I have a sense of where my heart has a leaning toward it versus I have an intent of a thought. And they're two different little things, but they're all internalized in me. And I give credit to the Lord on both of them, that he guided me to think of a certain thought or that I found myself motivated to do something. I give credit to him. 
you know, that's the um, intents of the heart and the, the thoughts. The Word of God is so precise, it can go in and separate out which one was intent and which one was thought. You have to have a pretty sharp sword that can do that. And so he says, that's what I have. I have I'm the one that has that sword. So he's, that's how he defines himself in this uh, letter. He goes on to say that the, the, the dynamic of where these people are at is that people are, in some cases, denying the faith. They are being challenged directly by the enemy, that there's a lot of enemy activity, and, and that there's some who've not denied the faith. It got pretty tough, but they're not denying the faith. But then he turns around and he says, but i got a couple of things against you. You follow the teaching of Balaam. So if you guys remember the story of Balaam, you know, he was the uh, prophet for hire that Balak hired and brought him down and he, and he wanted to get him to curse uh, the tents of Jacob. He wanted to curse the children of Israel as they were camping before they crossed into the promised land. And if you recall, uh, he didn't want to, he said he couldn't do but anything that the Lord does. And, and he went to prophesy and he couldn't prophesy. Instead, he spoke blessing. And in fact, one of the most powerful blessings in all of the Bible comes from Balaam. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob. And it's a very traditional blessing that we say beautiful song has been written to it. And, and one of the things that says when your avowed enemy renders a blessing on you, it's even more powerful than your friend that put a blessing on you. I mean, it really counts when your enemy does it. And Balaam was a guy who put a blessing on Israel, even though he was the enemy of Israel. Now, Balaam, when he was confronted by Balak, hey, I hired you to come down here and curse him. Instead, you bless him. The story goes... So Balaam said, well, wait, wait a minute. I mean, if you really want to do them in, let me tell you what you do. So you go take your sons and your daughters and send them down there to the edge of the camp and invite their sons and their daughters to come over and have a little party with you. And in the course of the party, and while you introduce your gods to them and get them to participate with you in your activities, and all you got to do this is the teaching of Balaam. All you got to do is get the people to stop listening to the teaching of Moses. And then they'll walk away from the Lord. So the classic definition of the teaching of Balaam is a teaching that is to get you to stop listening to Moses. Guys, I hate to say this. That is the dominant teaching of the Christian Orthodox Church. Don't listen to Moses. And that's the reason why we got so many problems. That's the reason why Christianity hasn't won the world in 2,000 years. They got off track a long time ago. And some are still holding to it. And there are still a lot of messianics that come in, and they're still toying with that. They're still playing with that. They're still in transition. Well, how much of Moses do we really have to follow and, and all that kind of business? And that's the teaching of Balaam. And he goes on to say that that teaching puts a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Now think about that for a moment. If the Messianic assembly is going to get hurt by the teaching of Balaam, 
And he says that this is a stumbling block for the sons of Israel. Then the sons of Israel are in those assemblies. And here we are, Messianic assembly. We don't want the teaching of Balaam. It's going to put a stumbling block in front of us. And why is it going to be a stumbling block? Because we don't want to repeat the same mistake that was made in the wilderness because we're the sons of Israel of today. We're the ones that are making the journey today to the promised land. So we've got to get away from Balaam and the teaching of him. Also, he went into sacrificing to idols and committing acts of immorality. That's the standard fare that goes with misbehavior against the Lord. We always got to have the immorality involved. And then he also says they also, some of them, hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans were all about let's just seek pleasure, you know. What would you think of a Messianic assembly, which all they did was uh, gather up all the tithes and offerings, and they just um, you know got together and went down to the liquor store and bought a bunch of good liquor and bought some steaks and got our barbecue grill out, and we just have uh, steaks and booze, and we'll call that worship. Welcome to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Obviously not right. Obviously not correct. But there are some messianics. They do that. They get a little too far with that. And so he's being warned about that activity. He says, repent therefore, or else I'm coming to you quickly. Again, let me repeat this again. This is not an idle threat. If the, if the Messiah isn't coming until in our generation or later then this is an instruction for now and for that group that will be affected by the coming of the Lord. It wasn't intended personally for all the people that were 200, 300, 500, 1,000 years ago. Because the threat of I'm coming to you quickly, God is not a man. He is not impulsive. The scripture is in fact uh, uh, very profound about this. I have a plan I know exactly when I'm coming, and I'm coming according to the plan. Well, if that be so, and he knows exactly when he's coming, then he's talking to the people that need to receive the instruction just before he comes. Not just any time. And that's what we hear uh, being spoken of here. Now, let me get to this last part here because it's very exciting. Uh, he says, um, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. Very powerful um, thing there. Hidden manna. One of the uh, great questions about the great tribulation and um, the bond servants, the sons of Israel going through tribulation is part of this escape, survive, endure thing <clears throat> is going to put in jeopardy basic necessities of life, like food. Just like our ancestors went into the wilderness, there's not a lot of food out there. The Lord provided manna out there in the wilderness for them to have a bread. And the Lord is making a promise to the people that will follow his instruction that are going to go through these difficult times, I'm going to give you manna. I'm going to give you hidden manna. Um, and if you were going to go into the great tribulation and God was going to give you manna in the morning, six days out of the week, 
man, that that changes the equation dramatically as to how you're going to survive and make it in the Great Tribulation. But I really like this one, the second one. He says, I would give him a white stone. Actually, the better translation was, I will give him a brightly illuminated stone. And the translators used a white stone because they couldn't figure out what in the world he was talking about. What we're talking about is the Urim and Thummim. We're talking about these stones that used to be in the breastplate of the high priest. One stone, the Urim, would, if God was giving answer to a question, it would illuminate, it would, it would become lit up. And the Thuman was somehow able to give a yes or a no answer to a question. Now, if, this, if the Urim didn't illuminate, God wasn't answering. If it did become illuminated, he was answering a question that had been posed. And when did they use the Urim and Thummim? When, when do we see the activity of that taking place and how that was working? When the remnant of Judah was coming back from Babylon, there was great question about the ancestry of the people that were coming. They had lost their ancestral records. They had been marrying foreign women and, and things like that, and they'd been there 70 years. So some of the ancestral records had come apart, and they didn't know who they really were and how do they fit into the family. And so they brought them forward, and they would pose the question, in particular, they're trying to reestablish the Levitical priesthood. They would have them come forward. Is this person a Levite? And he would give answer. The Urim and Thummim was used to confirm them. Uh, most of it was the remnant of Judah, but they were trying to separate out who are the Levites in, in the midst of us. Why would God give us this kind of promise going into the Great Tribulation? When we get to chapter 7, we're going to be introduced to the fact that the Lord is going to seal in the foreheads 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. Now, we don't have ancestral records amongst us of all the children of Israel as to what tribes we belong to. But the Lord knows who it is, and the Lord is planning on doing some specific things about that, reestablishing the tribal authority and the tribal ancestry. And so it would be fitting that he would give us a white stone or a brightly illuminated stone. It's part of the affirmation of who we are. And this is a very important spiritual issue for us in the Messianic movement. Our identity to being part of Israel, our identity is being part of the Lord. And he gives this very, very powerful promise that says, this is one of the things I'm going to do to um, assure you and affirm you. All right. We have gone through <clears throat> the first three of the letters, and our time has come to a conclusion. And the next study we are going to pick up from verse 18, and we'll talk about Thyatira, Thyatira and the messages that are throughout the rest of chapter 2 and 3. So shalom, everyone.